Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I am your host, Jonah Saller, and today I have a very special guest. Many of you might know the name Bruce Gore. He is a teacher. Uh, I, I was familiar with him through his video lectures that he has here on YouTube. Um, they are simply wonderful. If you haven't listened to them, you absolutely must but um, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation today. Uh, this book, perhaps more than any other book in scripture, has been debated as to what it means, what it's talking about. Is it past? Is it future? Somewhere in between. And so it can be a very difficult book and daunting to approach. And so I'm hoping that through this conversation, um, Bruce can help shed some light into um, the depths of this book and what the author John had in mind. But before we get into it, uh, Bruce, would you mind just just sharing a little bit about who you are? Sure, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on, Jonah. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I've uh, actually practiced law here in Spokane for about 20 years. So that's my uh, sort of my legit uh, job for some time and, and uh, retired from that a few years back and taught. Uh, at a private classical school here in Spokane the last few years, and then I'm fully retired at this point. Uh, I, I actually was an employee of Moody Bible Institute once upon a time, uh, way back in the early 70s, probably well before your time, Jonah, but uh, I worked in uh, Moody broad, Broadcasting. I was on the air and, and uh, <clears throat> did some other things after that. Eventually, uh, wound up going to law school, but uh, I've always had an interest in teaching. It's always been kind of my avocation and sometimes my profession, but uh, the interest in Revelation is really part of a broader interest in just what the Bible's about. And of course, the book of Revelation being the last book uh, certainly deserves a fair amount of uh, attention and respect. And I think for some, it's such a forbidding book that they tend to ignore it. And I've at least hoped to influence folks to take another glance at it and maybe find some things there that will be of uh, real value to them. So that's uh, kind of the short version of it. Awesome. Well, well, again, thank you so much for, for being willing to come on. I'm, I'm very excited to, to have this conversation with you. Um, let's, let's start with just a preliminary question. When it comes to the book of Revelation, what are the various interpretations that you'll find out there? And specifically, and we'll hone in more on this, but what, what is preterism? Okay. <clears throat> well, the, um, generally speaking, this is a, a, a somewhat too simplistic an answer, but at least it gives you the feel for the, the waterfront here. Um, there are those who take the view that Revelation is fundamentally describing the future, uh, and that would be called a futurist type of view. There are those who would say Revelation is fundamentally describing the past. And the word commonly used for that is preterist, which is based on a word that means past, like past tense. And then there's a view that says, well, Revelation is really describing in kind of broad strokes the great events of history. And that's called the historicist view. So those three are the main uh, views. And then you've got sub categories of those, you know. Uh, <clears throat> throughout church history, uh, it's been a pretty even divide. I think uh, uh, the uh, certainly at the time of the Reformation, I would say the historicist view is probably the dominant view. You certainly have people along the way who had a, a preterist view of Revelation. I think they've always been in the minority, uh, and I think there's reasons for that, but, uh, but it, uh, it, it's certainly more a kind of uh, enticing to think that Revelation is describing, especially events in my own day. I think people get the idea that if I could see some events in Revelation in this morning's newspaper or something like that, that it gives it a kind of additional juice, you know. So there's always been that temptation. <clears throat> the word preterist itself uh, simply means past. There are two uh, species of preterism. Uh, <clears throat> one is called full preterism. I call it radical preterism. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've been fighting a cold, so I apologize for no worries. <clears throat> coughing here along the way. Uh, this full preterism or radical preterism would say actually everything predicted in the New Testament happened in the first century, including the second coming of Christ. 
now that's not a majority view by any means. In fact, it's a fairly minuscule minority of people who've taken that view, but it is out there. And that's not what I am. I'm not a full preterist in that sense. I fully concur in the uh, classic conviction of the church that Christ will come at some time in the future and that uh, that'll be a coming to judge the quick and the dead as all of the classical creeds affirm. And so I'm a preterist in a modified sense, meaning I believe that a fair amount of the predictive material in the New Testament happened in the first century. I think the bulk of Revelation is describing first century events, but not all of Revelation. I still think Revelation and the entire New Testament contemplates that there is a great future event that we commonly call the second advent, and that will take place at some point along the way, probably in the distant future, but who knows, you know, it's a, sure. it's an unknown to us. Great, great, yeah. So th- those various <laughs> views all throughout history have kind of uh, come and gone in terms of intensity, and it seems like right now preterism is starting to make a little bit of a comeback. It's starting to become a little bit more of a dominant view, as far as I can tell anyways. But in terms of what, how a preterist interprets the book of Revelation, um, what is the book of Revelation about, according to a preterist? And is it unanimous uh, in terms of there's one view from the preterist perspective, or is there multiple views? Well, there's, there are multiple views of some details, but the fundamental uh, view of it is pretty much uh, consistent. And in some ways, it's related to a Another issue, which is uh, somewhat connected to this, which is when was Revelation written, Mm. Uh, the the date of Revelation. There are those who affirm that Revelation was written about 95 under the reign of Domitian, who launched a fairly vicious but fairly brief persecution against Christian people around the year 95 or so. He had reigned for some years. This is really toward the end of his reign. And, uh, and that that is the context out of which the book was written. The main reason that people have taken that view is because Irenaeus, who's a church father writing in the late second century, uh, has a statement in one of his writings about Revelation, which on the face of it does seem to say that Revelation was written uh, around the year 95. Right. Uh, I'm not, I won't go into a lot of technical detail on that, but, but there's been a fair amount of scholarly examination of that statement. And it, I think it's at least uh, a credible argument that, that that's really misread. It, it, it's an ambiguous statement that he makes. It's not all that clear cut. Right. And it may very well be that what he was actually saying that was John the Apostle was still going to be around in 95, but not that the book of Revelation was necessarily written at that time. But anyway, that's been one of the main reasons that people have gone with the late date. The early date would say that Revelation was written uh, probably closer to the year 65 or thereabouts, and it was triggered by the uh, campaign of persecution launched by Nero uh, following the fire in Rome that took place in 64. Now, that is a well-documented persecution, and in fact, that lasted several years was much more violent uh, and destructive than the certainly the persecution under Domitian, which only lasted a few months, uh, and uh, certainly creates a much more appealing context for some of the amazing images of what appears to be violence and, and so on uh, that are described in Revelation. So uh, you have a, a very strong internal evidence for an earlier date a certain amount of external evidence, but uh, that's kind of where the where the debate is. So, if if we take the preterist approach, that usually implies the early date, and the early date uh, would therefore view Revelation as describing events connected to the uh, the Jewish wars generally that started in sixty six. Uh, the campaign by Vespasian, the Roman general and his uh, Roman troops who were with him, which was a campaign of utter destruction in Israel, culminating in a siege of Jerusalem that lasted for about five months, 
uh, and ultimately wound up destroying Jerusalem almost entirely, burning it to the ground, dismantling the temple. Not one stone was left upon another, killing literally hundreds of thousands of people who were, who were trapped in the city under a siege and deporting the rest of these mostly Jewish people to all different parts of the world and basically leaving Jerusalem and its environs a, a wasteland. Mm. And uh, that does rather uh, uh, elegantly, I would say, fit with some of the apocalyptic imagery that you find spelled out in Revelation. So that's the view I take. And I think uh, uh, the argument can be made with a straight face, you know, that there's a pretty uh, compelling argument in that direction. I might mention, by the way, that I had grown up in a tradition that, that took the late date Okay. And also viewed Revelation as fully futurist. That was the that was the background I came out of mm. as a as a child growing up and so on. Um, and I wasn't really shaken from that view until I was in my mid twenties, and I heard a series of lectures by a now retired pastor named Earl Palmer, who was pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. And for the first time in my life, I heard a credible argument for an early date of revelation, which he acknowledged at the time was a minority view, but he made such a compelling case for it that I had to go back and rethink it myself. And, and that was back probably around the year 1979, 78, something like that. So that's, that's you know, since then, really, I've been more persuaded of that early uh, date of revelation. Yeah, that's that's very similar actually to to my own journey. I I grew up in a in a dispensational um, environment, and so that was the view I held up until my my early twenties as well. I'm I'm in my mid twenties now, so only about mm -hmm. two three years ago. But um, around then, I I came across Ken Gentry and his book um, Before Jerusalem Fell. Yes, where, where I, yeah, mm -hmm. I I thought the arguments in there were very very difficult to refute, and so. I looked deeper and lo and behold, a lot of the images and visions in Revelation, I was, I was amazed to say the least at how well they fit the time period and the events of the first century. Um, so, so the next question that I would, I would love to ask um, is, is kind of a two-part question. So first of all, if you wouldn't mind just kind of expounding what is some of the internal evidence in the book of Revelation that would suggest an early date? Um, because I think for a lot of people, the date is really like the make or break. If it's written in the mm -hmm. 90s, it's not about the fall of Jerusalem, right? Right. And so, right. Uh, let, yeah, let's just start there. Why? What would okay. you say, specifically looking internally, uh, are, are some compelling arguments that would suggest an early date? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> there's, there's kind of a, an interesting sort of argument in principle that, uh, at least as a place to start here, Revelation itself says that the events that are described in this book are going to take place in the near future. It right. says that repeatedly, uh, both at the beginning and at the end of the book. It's, and, it, and it's stated with such an emphasis that it, it forces a person reading it to at least say, we've got to do something with this, you know, if, if I'm going to take a futurist view, then somehow or other, I have to uh, work around what it seems to be the plain, uh, explicit statement that these things are going to take place soon. Right. Well, uh, the attempts to avoid the plain sense of that language, the Greek word is intake, uh, which means to take place in the near future. That's the way it's invariably used in the New Testament. And it's used on other occasions and in other contexts, it plainly means something that's going to happen in the near future. Uh, and, and so really the, the attempts to avoid that have been generally to say, well, John said that, but he didn't mean it. Either the word soon uh, really just means it could happen at any time. We should always live with an expectation that it may be soon or soon may mean simply rapidly. It may be thousands of years in the future, but when it happens, it'll be really fast, you know, that, that idea. Right. Uh, those, are, those are the kinds of attempts to avoid the force of the language, which are, are suggested, but really, I think an honest reading of the text would suggest 
you have to come with loads of a priori assumptions to get from here to there in terms of what the text is actually saying. It's saying these things are going to happen soon. Right. And and so at least right off the bat, within the first two or three verses of Revelation, you're faced with that rather significant and weighty argument. Uh, as you look at the book, of course, you know, the images can be uh, somewhat uh, um, forbidding. Uh, you know, you have graphic, colorful images and so on that that show up and, and people could do various things with them. The, the text that probably more than any other uh, has been compelling to people who take an early date is chapter 17 mm. of Revelation, which is sometimes called by some people the timestamp of yeah. Revelation. And in that text, John says, uh, you know, one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said, I'll show you the judgment of the prostitute who sits on many waters. And, and in that connection, he says that, that there are seven uh, heads and seven hills, you know, that are the, he says the seven heads are seven hills. They are also seven kings. So you have a, a, an interesting kind of attempt to tie it to something in real you know, historical uh, reality there. <clears throat> the seven hills, well, in the ancient world, as well as in the modern world, Rome is, is customarily viewed the city of seven hills. And so that seems to be at least the most common and, and natural connection. But in that connection, there's also seven kings. Well, seven kings uh, would presumably, if we're speaking of Rome, be a reference to seven Caesars, the rulers of Rome. Uh, and it was customarily understood the first of those was Julius Caesar. Uh, and if you count the Caesars from Julius Caesar on, then the one that would be uh, uh, the ruling emperor at the time that Revelation was written by the terms of that chapter would be Nero. Mm -hmm. By the fallen, one is, the other's not yet come, you know, and so on. And so uh, at least on the face of it, that does... Uh, present a rather sticky problem to those who want to push this out into a different time frame. I've been impressed with uh, Josephine Mazingbird Ford. She's, uh, I certainly differ with her on a fair number of issues. Uh, she's a somewhat more liberal than I am, you might say, in terms of her theology, but she did write for the Anchor Bible series a, a remarkably uh, astute uh, commentary on Revelation and she, by her own admission, says she started the commentary, uh, assuming the late date, as most uh, would take it. But as she studied it more and more closely, she was forced simply by the compelling internal evidence to gradually accommodate increasingly in her thinking an early date, because there's just no way to get around some of the uh, issues that show up. And she especially highlights Revelation 17. She, there, there's just no credible way to avoid what is manifestly uh, an attempt to tie that into a real historical setting. So she, she actually comes up with a novel theory, which uh, not many people have followed her on. She says Revelation came out in two editions. And that mm -hmm. there was the early edition connected to Nero, and then kind of a modified, updated edition with some revisions that came out under Domitian. And she's trying to, you know, play both sides of the fence there, in my sure. opinion. But, but I, I, to me, it just is a, is a compelling uh, case to be made that a sober, somewhat disinterested, neutral scholar uh, finds herself painted into a corner on that particular point and others that you find in Revelation sure. So, you know, though I would say those are probably the main underpinnings of an argument for an earlier date. There's, there's certainly other things that could be mentioned, but in some ways, um, the power of the other items, uh, in a sense, the power of them is based on the assumption of an early date. Uh, but I would say those two would represent maybe uh, the most important arguments that people tend to rely on right. for trying to reach an early date conviction. Yeah, that <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I think that that chapter 17 argument is very, very strong. It's 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 kind of, it's very difficult to get around. That's for sure. The arguments that I've heard against it uh, just seem to have to change different aspects of what the text is actually saying to make it it possible. Um, next question that I would I would really like to go into is 
as I've seen, the popular preteristic view is that the book of Revelation is concerning primarily the, the fall of Jerusalem. But another view out there is that the book of Revelation is both talking about the fall of Jerusalem in the first part, but then moving more to the judgment and fall of Rome in the second part. Now, I take the position that it's pretty much all the way up to the, the future is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, and I, I'm pretty sure that's the view you take as well. But what would be the arguments for part of the book dealing with Rome, and why do you either think they're credible or not credible? Yeah, <clears throat> the, um, the argument that the, some of the, uh, the descriptions in Revelation that have to do with a fall of a great city, chapter 18, for example, uh, where you have, um, you know, the, the rulers of the world, the uh, uh, ship, uh, you know, those who travel by ship, the merchants and so on, standing afar off and lamenting and weeping the fall of a great city. Uh, there have been those who've said, that just doesn't sound like Jerusalem, you know, that sounds like it must be some, some other great city. And of course, the other contender for that would be, uh, would be Rome. Uh, the difficulty is that nothing like that ever happened in the case of Rome. You don't have Rome actually collapsing uh, in, the, in the form that Revelation describes, whereas Revelation is certainly uh, accurate in describing what happened in Jerusalem. Those things really did occur pretty much as advertised in, uh, in the book of Revelation. The, uh, the, the sticking point people will tend to fixate on is in Revelation 17, the very last uh, verse of the chapter or thereabouts, I think it's the last verse, uh, says that the, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So you have uh, an interpretive statement referring to this apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic image of a woman who was drunk on the blood of the saints who you know all of this kind of uh, she's a harlot she's got Babylon plastered on her and all of that graphic imagery there and then right at the end of the chapter it says she's the city that rules over the kings of the earth and they well now wait a minute uh, Jerusalem didn't rule over the kings of the earth come on I mean that's got to be Rome right. uh, and it means it's either Rome in the first century setting or some people will say, well, then that's referring to Rome way out in the future, you know, and, and it kind of creates a sort of hybrid view of Revelation where it's describing Jerusalem in the early going and then later it shifts to a Rome and something that would be in the future. Well, um, I think that the difficulty with that, and again, I think uh, Ken Gentry certainly treats this well and others who've looked at it. Yeah. Uh, give you know extraordinarily helpful insight here, but but uh, when it when when Revelation says that that this is the city that rules over the kings of the earth, uh, it's important to realize that Revelation is part of the Bible. Uh, Revelation has to be interpreted in light of common usages that you find in the Bible, and to start importing into my interpretive approach to Revelation what I think are political observations about the first century or any other century and divesting Revelation of its biblical context uh, is likely to get me into some trouble. The fact is, from an Old Testament point of view, Jerusalem did rule over the kings of the earth. It was the covenant capital of the world. Uh, many of the Psalms celebrate that. It housed, Jerusalem, housed the temple, which was called a, a house of prayer for the nations. Mm. Uh, the idea that the king ruling in Jerusalem would have uh, that kind of dominant authority, it was assumed. It, 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 it didn't take place quite that way because God's people in the Old Testament weren't always as faithful as they should have been. But the idea that in principle, Jerusalem was the central city, you might say, of planet Earth, uh, is pretty easy to demonstrate. Sure. And for Revelation to come along then and say that uh, the woman is the city that rules over the kings of the earth, in some way you say it's true. As it went with Jerusalem, it tended to go with, uh, with all the cities. When Jerusalem was faithful, 
it had a huge impact on all the surrounding nations. And when, when Jerusalem was unfaithful, uh, it also tended to have a negative impact on the other cities. And so, you know, to really deal with that verse, you have to do it in a way that has some biblical integrity. But I think even that verse, which has been problematic in some people's minds, uh, nevertheless, it leads us to the, uh, the same conclusion. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree with, <clears throat> with all of that. One of the objections that I've heard um, to Revelation being primarily concerned with the fall of Jerusalem is that it's written to seven churches in Asia Minor. And one of the objections is, what is this city, Jerusalem, what does that have to do with churches in Asia Minor? What would have been the significance <laughs> yes. to them? Yeah. So can yeah. you touch on that? Well, yeah. It, uh, number one, uh, Rev, the, book, the, the city of Jerusalem was a world city, uh, you know, so uh, it, it certainly had huge uh, relevance for anybody uh, living in the Roman world in the first century. To say that, you know, Revelation uh, would collapse in the ancient world would be, I'm sorry, that the book of, that uh, Jerusalem would collapse uh, in, the, uh, in the ancient world would be something tantamount to saying maybe in the modern world that uh, the city of London fell overnight or the city mm -hmm. of Hong Kong or, uh, you know, some great uh, sort of world city, New York, uh, being wiped out. Well, you know that even if if you didn't live in the United States, if New York collapsed overnight, the whole world would feel the shockwave. Uh, and in some ways, Revelation was uh, maybe the greatest city in the ancient world outside of Rome itself. Uh, it was in the east. It would be sort of the easternmost major city in the Roman world. If you went any further east, you got into Parthia, you got into other uh, areas that were outside of Roman uh, dominion. Uh, and so, uh, you know, to, to identify Revelation as a city that would have that kind of shockwave effect if it fell, uh, to identify Jerusalem that way would be uh, really something I think meaningful. The other, the other point, even though these are cities that were in um, Asia Minor, um, the, the people who were in those churches were a mix of Gentiles and Jews. And Jewish people all had a huge interest in the welfare of, of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was their, their home city, their home base in the world. And so uh, for them to hear that Jerusalem was going to be exposed to the judgment of God and to have some idea what that meant would be uh, colossally you know, relevant to them. Uh, also, Revelation is not only describing the welfare of Jerusalem, it also uh, has a fair amount to say about a shakeup in Rome. Uh, Rome went through a very significant uh, time of, of uh, a kind, almost a, a civil war sort of situation about the same time that Jerusalem was, was going through these uh, tough experiences. It happened almost uh, at the same moment. You have the year of four emperors in Rome, kind of uh, almost a meltdown of the civil order. Uh, and so even though people were not living in or near Jerusalem, they were living between Jerusalem and Rome, and, uh, and the content of Revelation would be a significant warning to them as well. And even though the book was originally written to the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, uh, we have every reason to believe, as would have been common, that the book was rapidly copied and distributed throughout the Christian world. So it didn't take long, probably just a matter of weeks or a few months for this book uh, to have circulated well beyond the original audience. So, you know, all of those, I think, argue that even though it was originally addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, its relevance for them and for the rest of the Christian world was, was, uh, was certainly uh, within the scope of John's interest in, in writing that book. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. I also think too, it's there's a significant um, emphasis in Scripture that one of the primary persecutors of the church was not Rome, but the Jewish people. Yes. And so, to recognize that this was kind of a cataclysmic event that would signify to the Christians that 
that they were no longer just a heretical sect of Judaism, but were able to actually establish themselves as the church and, and um, come out from underneath this persecuting power in many ways. I think that that's another significant reason too. That's good. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit now to kind of diving into the text, one of the uh, accusations being in a dispensational environment and then coming away from that into this view was that as preterists, you guys just spiritualize and allegorize everything in Revelation. <laughs> so how would you respond to that kind of an accusation? Well, I, I'd say um, it's an interesting argument to make because, uh, you know, when Revelation 6 says that stars fell from the sky to the earth, as, fig, as figs fall from a tree, uh, you know, uh, that idea. Uh, in other words, as you, as you go through the book, you find all kinds of, of images which no sane person would actually uh, interpret as literal fact. Uh, there's a woman in chapter 12 who's, uh, you know, has a crown of 12 stars who's standing with the moon under her feet uh, you know, I, you're, you're immediately facing uh, some real problems. Now, I, I know my dispensational friends will say, well, you should take everything literally that can be taken literally. Sure. Uh, but if, if something manifestly cannot be, then you can allow a little bit of poetic imagery there. But then you say that's, that's kind of an interpretive principle of convenience, you know. Yeah. Uh, John starts his book off by using, prominently using, uh, a form of the word sign, semeon is the Greek word. Uh, and he, he makes it clear that what he's going to be writing uh, is a book that will be heavily dependent on signs. Uh, signs are, by the nature of the case, images that point to a reality greater than themselves. And that should be my kind of marching orders as I'm thinking about reading this book and making sense out of it is if I read about the, the moon turning blood red or stars falling from the sky or, or uh, various kinds of images uh, that you know, are, are along those lines, I should say, th this is a sign. What kind of sign uh, is it pointing to? And, and it, can I, with some degree of credibility, uh, draw a connection between this sign and that reality historically? Uh, you know, sometimes it's easier to do than other times, but I think we have warrant, at least, in terms of how the book is introduced, uh, to say that, that that's a legitimate way to think about it. I know that it's, it's I mean, I've, I've had this accusation made to me more than once, you know, that, well, you're just trying to spiritualize everything. You're just trying to turn it all into figurative language. And, and I say, well, I don't know that, that that's exactly what's going on. I'm trying to I'm trying to come to a credible understanding of this book, given the literary genre that's in play. <clears throat> if I read the 23rd Psalm, and David says in that Psalm that he leads me beside still waters, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, you know, I, I, I immediately realize I'm dealing with poetry here, that, that I'm not supposed to take that as literal fact. God isn't dragging me out by the you know, collar and making me lie down and in grass that's all wet with, you know, that's not the point of it. The point is, it's poetic imagery to carry a very important message to my heart of comfort. And, and you, you think that's, that is what it means to interpret the Bible. It means to hear the literary genre that's involved and read it, understanding it in terms of the rules that would apply to that particular genre. Right. And certainly Revelation has a distinct genre to it, and there are rules that should be applied in that connection that I think uh, don't cast us into a sea of utter subjective confusion, and yet free us from some rigid kind of lockstep attempt to make everything uh, sort of literally, uh, you know, like a newspaper account of something that might actually happen as advertised in a given text in, in the in the book, you know, I'm thinking right. about chapter 11, uh, chapter nine, uh, where we hear about locusts. Right. Well, I've heard people say, well, those got to be helicopters, you know, well, I, I don't know, I it seems to me that that takes about as much imaginative leaping 
to get from a locust that's described in chapter nine to a helicopter right. as it does to say, well, maybe it's just reflecting the Old Testament, one of the standard Old Testament images of a great plague. Maybe the locust is simply there to tell me this is a huge destructive plague Hmm. as that term is frequently used in the Old Testament. Maybe I'm on safer ground to see the locust in that light than to try to manipulate it into some sort of modern technology or, or military armaments or something like that. Right. Yeah. I, I have to say that, that as I studied the book of Revelation and tried to come to a deeper understanding, I found that many of my interpretive questions were actually answered very forthright in the Old Testament. Um, You go to the Old Testament and a lot of these things you see, oh, this is very similar and here's exactly what it was talking about. Or even the Olivet Discourse with the stars falling. You go and you recognize Jesus is drawing off of Isaiah to, to paint a picture here. And in Isaiah, he's not talking about literal cosmic events. He's talking about the destruction and judgment of a pagan nation. And so you can start to put two and two together just by using the Old Testament. It's amazing how scripture really does interpret itself. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's a, that's a great insight. And that's really true. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the perhaps most, um, sensationalized part of the book of revelation is the beast of revelation Mm -hmm. um and specifically his number 666 Mm -hmm. how do how do we as interpreters exegetically determine who the identity of the beast is and if we could even just hone into uh, who is the second beast a lot of times the second beast just gets overlooked and nobody (laughs) focuses or gives the second beast any time so right right well it's a that's a great question i the, uh, the, the, by the way, Ken Gentry also wrote another book, uh, which is entitled The Beast of Revelation. You probably yes. know that, but your listeners may be interested in, in reading that because it goes into infinitely more detail than I'm going to give it in two or three minutes here. But, but uh, there is a, 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 um, an interesting aspect of ancient uh, alphabets that, that each letter had a number value. Uh, we don't do that in English. At least we have A, B, C, and we have one, two, three, and those are not the same the same symbols, you know. So, right. but in the ancient world, they didn't have a separate symbol for one. An alpha uh, or an aleph in Hebrew would have a numeric value as well as a uh, a value in terms of uh, written literature. And so, uh, it was to say that uh, a person's uh, name had a number. Uh, is simply to point out what what, uh, people would take for granted. Every name had a number because it stood for the numeric value of the letters that constituted the name. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at the the number 666, uh, and by the way, this is not absolutely neat. It is, uh, I think, it is uh, forceful and compelling, but not perfect. Sure. And in some ways, uh, I think we need to just allow for that. Uh, but the the uh, the numeric value of the name uh, Caesar Nero uh, in Hebrew now was was six, six, six. But you had to put it in the accusative case to get there. You see, that's where it's not quite neat. Right. Uh, the the uh, in the nominative case, it would be six, one, six. Uh, it's an interesting little, uh, almost uh, esoteric you know, point of ancient history. There were some renderings of the book of Revelation that actually substituted 616 into the text because it was so, uh, it was taken for granted that it was referring to Nero. Yeah. Well, I don't think they had to do that. And, and you know, but the, the point is that that was pretty much a kind of obvious understanding of the meaning of that uh, number. Uh, in the very early days of the church, at least in some people's minds. So the, the uh, connection to um, uh, Nero and that number, uh, at least I think that argument can be made uh, in, a, in a fairly uh, honest way, realizing that at this point, uh, it, first of all, it's not the Greek value of the number or the letters, it's the Hebrew That may be why there's a warning that uh, this is for people who have wisdom. This is for people who kind of look past the initial level because 
course, the book was written in Greek, but we have to kind of get past that. It's a little bit uh, tricky, but it does seem to be that that uh, that's what's going on there. If right. uh, if we were to uh, try to um, tie the um, the number of the name to uh, other points in history, uh, you know, again, it's like it's almost open season for for various kinds of. Uh, uh, I, I remember seeing an argument once that uh, Ronald Reagan must be the Antichrist because his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan, and each of those names has six letters in it. And so, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing you get into. Right. Uh, again, I think we're much better off to try to understand the content of these images in terms of its first century setting. And, and if, we, if we do that, we get pretty close to a a credible understanding of what that letter or that what that number is uh, pointing at. Yeah, definitely. So let's let's distinguish between the the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. Oh yeah, okay. I knew I was I knew I was forgetting yeah. something you asked me. <laughs> that was the other. the uh, you know the the beast of the sea uh, does seem to be uh, at least by preterist interpreters pretty commonly taken to be. The Roman Empire in general and Nero in particular, that one is a little easier to, right. to argue. The beast of the land uh, does seem to be, at least in general terms, the corrupt religion of Jerusalem, which had sold its soul really to Rome. Uh, when, when at the trial of Jesus, Pilate is trying to negotiate some compromise to get Jesus off the hook, you know, he's typical politician, he'd, he'd like to figure out some way to avoid, uh, you know, the, the uh, rock and the hard place that he's in. <clears throat> and, uh, and what he meets in terms of the outburst of the religious leaders there at the trial of Jesus, we have no king but Caesar. Right. We have no king but Caesar. I mean, that's an astonishing thing for people who are supposed to be the leaders of the Jewish religion, the people who are the fiduciaries of the proper worship of God, who are responsible for the operation of the temple, yeah. uh, for those people to stand up and say uh, and affirm, we have no king but Caesar, uh, would represent one of the most dramatic repudiations of their own religion that anybody could possibly imagine. Right. And and certainly what what the uh, Jewish leadership was doing in the first century uh, would be very compatible with the description in chapter 13, uh, urging people, in effect, to worship Caesar, urging them to make deals with the devil in that sense, uh, really becoming the lackeys that are working on behalf of Roman authority uh, and and, you know, so I don't know that we could say it's one particular person. I mean, I've heard people argue for various uh, individual people who may be the, the, uh, the beast there uh, from the land. I'm not, I, don't, I don't see a compelling enough argument to really try to make that case. But it does seem to me that it at least is uh, reflective of what was happening uh, in the Jewish leadership, which really had certainly from the time of the trial of Jesus on, and, and certainly before then, really, it had to have already happened, had really abandoned their faith. They'd abandoned their tra traditional religion. Uh, they had become the, uh, really, the puppets of Rome, and they were leading the people in that direction. So, you know, in general terms, that'd be the, the way that I think we'd have to understand uh, that description there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think, too, that the the vision later of this harlot who is sitting on top of the back of the beast yeah. really shows that picture between the sea beast and the land beast of this working in conjunction with one another that you, that exactly. you see very, very um, present between in their relationship. Right. So let, let's go to probably a topic that could be an entire episode, but we'll try to, <laughs> to not <laughs> let it take too much time. But chapter 20 of Revelation, the millennial mm -hmm. reign of Christ, is perhaps mm -hmm. the, the biggest debate in eschatology over pre-millennial, <laughs> amillennial, post-millennial. Yeah. You can go on and on and on. But 
in your estimation, what is taking place there and how should this, this thousand year reign of Christ be, be viewed? Yeah. Well, it, the, the reference to a thousand years, of course, gives rise to the word millennium, right. which is actually a Latin term not found in the Bible. There's no, the word millennium never happens, never occurs in the Bible. And you do have only in Revelation 20, a reference to a thousand years. Uh, and it's repeated there, you know, two or three times in that chapter. So I think the first thing a person has to do in reading chapter 20 is to avoid using the word millennium because it has so much baggage. If I say, you know, we're living in the millennium, then people immediately think I've you know, lost my, my head because they have baggage. They have impressions. They think the millennium has certain features to it that uh, certainly are not going on in the world today. You know, that you, you just run into that. So I, I'd, I'd have to caution someone reading that to just read a thousand years. That's, what's, that's what the term is. And, and that's a very different thing from saying millennium. Right. So then we say, okay, uh, the revelation refers to a thousand years. Well, once again, I have to ask the question, when we hear of a thousand anything in the Bible, what, what's the general sense of the use of that phrase? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What does that mean? Does that mean that God doesn't own the cattle on the 1,001th hill? Uh, does it mean that there's precisely 1,000 hills that uh, you know, God is overseeing He's a, uh, and, and that's it? You know, nobody would read it that way. Right. Uh, they would immediately realize that that's a poetic way of saying that God owns the cattle on every hill in the world. Thank you very much. And, and it's just a way of, of uh, putting that in sort of graphic language that, that certainly is not ambiguous. <clears throat> the Old Testament says more than once, God's going to be uh, faithful to the thousandth generation. Okay, fine. Does that mean the, the thousand first generation is uh, outside the scope of his care? You know, uh, nobody would would take that view. And by the way, if God is faithful to the thousandth generation, that means that he's going to be faithful to generations living in the year 25,000 AD at the least, right? because yep. a generation is 25 years long at the least and a thousand you know, that, that's where you wind up. So the people who want to be really uh, sort of literalistic about a thousand years uh, have got some problems on their hand when they look at other ways that the word thousand is used. And in fact, there's other examples of it as well, but I think that makes the point. So Revelation comes along and says, uh, Christ is going to reign for a thousand years. Well, I think it's, it's certainly legitimate and sensible to believe that that's not <clears throat> saying he's going to reign for a thousand years precisely, and then that's that any more than saying that God being faithful to a thousand generations is sort of limiting uh, to a thousand precise generations, God's faithfulness. It is saying he's going to reign for a long time. It's an extended period of time. <clears throat> I think it does refer to the era in which we're living. I think that you can say that in this time we're living, Satan is bound, but the binding of Satan is not uh, what you know, usually people think bound him, like put him in handcuffs and threw him in hell or something. That's not the sense of the text. Right. It's saying that it bound him and threw him into the abyss. The abusus is the Greek, the abyss, which is consistently in the Old Testament, the idea of the deep. Mm. It's the place of chaos. It's the place in the Old Testament, in David's Psalms and so on, where the Gentiles were dominating the swirling, chaotic uh, world of, of the Gentile rule, as opposed to the land where you have the order of God's law and God's people and faith and so on. Right. So what happens? In Revelation, um, there is going to be a binding of Satan described there which says he's being pushed back into the place of his domains, into the abyss. And how is that happening? It's happening because in this period in which we're living, the gospel is being preached. 
and wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is faithfully preached, Satan runs for cover. Uh, we beat back the gates of hell. He's trapped behind those gates in the abyss. He'd like to come out. He'd like to come out and, and make havoc. Uh, but the fact is the gospel paints him into a corner and keeps him there. But, Jonah, when a culture begins kicking God out of the public square, when a culture begins to freeze out the gospel, when a culture begins to abandon its Christian roots, then sure enough, it doesn't take long, and you see the evidence of Satan freed from the abyss and back out there in the, in the public square, burning down buildings and creating havoc and, and responsible for all kinds of destruction and mayhem, which really is reflective of the depravity of the human race, which is right. really only brought under uh, control by the effect of the gospel, the mercy of God, the grace of Christ, all delivered to us courtesy of the gospel. So the gospel is very important to us, and, and we abandon it at our peril. Yeah. It seems to me that's what Revelation 20 is getting at, that we're living under the great benefits of the gospel. And the smartest thing we can do is to lift up the name of Christ and proclaim with integrity his truth. And in so doing, Satan is constantly and repeatedly and increasingly bound and driven back into his narrow corner that's called the abyss. Right. Yeah, I've, I've often given the, the analogy to uh, using C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But when a Aslan comes back, you don't immediately see the complete decimation of the witch's kingdom. There's, <laughs> there's, a, right. there's an undoing process that occurs. Yeah. And yeah. so evil is not eradicated right away, yeah. but evil is no longer advancing in the way that it was because the breath of the lion is now breaking down the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. And so through the gospel, that is our, our sword that, that completes that mission uh, through yeah, Christ. That's a, that's a great, uh, great connection. I think Lewis must have had something like that in mind when he, yeah, when he yeah, wrote I that. Imagine so. It fits so well, you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So I've got, I just got two more questions. Um, but going into Revelation chapter 21 and 22, uh, th this is a, a very personal question to me because these are two chapters that I have wrestled with um, in terms of just recognizing that this part looks like it's being fulfilled now, but this part looks like it's referencing the consummate reality. Mm -hmm. What would you say when reading Revelation chapter 21, 22 is, are we looking at visions completely future or is there almost an already not yet kind of theme that's being brought forth um, in John's yeah. vision? Yeah, I, I certainly think that it's an already not yet kind of arrangement. Um, the, we're given to understand biblically that there is a great and glorious uh, consummation of what God is about and we're also given to understand that we haven't seen it fully, but we've seen something of it. Right. Uh, and so, you know, what Jesus did in the first century was to establish a kingdom. It started like a mustard seed. It was so small, so innocuous. Nobody thought this would ever amount to anything. But uh, lo and behold, as time went on, it continued to grow and expand, become increasingly influential till eventually Constantine himself standing for all of Rome bowed the knee to King Jesus. And throughout history, you have that idea of a kind of growth and expansion of the influence of Christ and of the influence of the gospel. And so you'd say we're kind of living in a situation where something significant is under construction. We are, in fact, living in the new heavens and the new earth. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Yes. The old things are passing away. The, the things that are coming are increasingly uh, becoming the evident reality. But it's in fits and starts. It's like the stock market. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. But the gradual, general tra trajectory is up, <laughs> you see. Right. And, uh, and I think that's what we see as the story of history. So I, I think we can see the new heavens and the new earth all around us in terms of the uh, effects of the gospel, but certainly there's a whole lot left to do, a whole lot of work 
uh, yet to be accomplished. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of the nations. And I am with you always until the end of the age. Well, if God, if Jesus commanded us to do that, then I don't see any reason that we should believe it's not going to happen, that the nations will be discipled into the obedience to Christ. But manifestly, we're not quite there yet. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he's put every enemy under his feet. Well, I'm not sure we've seen every enemy put under his feet yet, but it is a work in progress. And here and there around the world, it certainly is the case uh, that increasingly we see that uh, nations are being discipled into the authority of Christ. There was a time in American history when you might say that we were a great example of that. I'm not so sure anymore that you could yes. say that with a straight face, but but there are parts of the world where the uh, rule of Christ is candidly acknowledged, not just religiously, but, but politically. Right. And, uh, and that sort of thing uh, seems to be the story that is taking place in history. And we can keep praying, thy kingdom come, in the uh, conviction that that's exactly what that means. God's kingdom is gradually being built uh, over the years, over the centuries, uh, heading toward that great final uh, conclusion of the matter, which still is out somewhere in our future. Amen. Yeah, I, cu- I couldn't agree more. I think <clears throat> you, you look out at the world right now and you see all these different secular political agendas and movements and all of, all of these things, the one thing they have in common is they are planning to make generational impact, right? Yeah. <laughs> planning to, right. to make a mark on society that'll last hundreds of years. And we as Christians, we have a promise from the King of Kings <laughs> that the yeah. nations will be discipled because he has all authority. And so yeah. I think that out of all groups of people, we should be the most confident that even when we look outside our window and things don't look good, that we have a promise that comes from the sovereign Lord himself that, that, that will, will come to pass. So, yeah, I, yeah, lo- I in, love that optimism. It's beautiful. In that, in that connection, uh, Jonah, it is, it, to me, it's an interesting irony that the, the theology that we both grew up in, kind of a dispensational outlook, has, has the precise impact on a person who believes it of making them detach from that project. Right. And that in times mentality usually comes along with a view that things are going from bad to worse. There's not much left for us Christians to do except to evangelize as best we can because the end is just around the corner. Right. And that's a complete abandonment of exactly what Jesus told us to do. It's, a, it's one of the most insidious, deceitful lies ever foisted on God's people to make them believe that uh, things are going from bad to worse and all we can do is hang on until the second coming. It, it really deprives us of a vision of the most important things we're supposed to be about, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I would completely agree. I actually just recently made a video where I was talking about uh, the the underlying almost Gnosticism that kind of comes out of some of these views about like the pre-trib rapture and stuff where everything is emphasizing getting out or escaping this world and transcending it to get to get away and there's a disconnect where i look at the incarnation and the incarnation is like the most dramatic picture that the spiritual divine realities are being joined to the material saying this world is redeemable you know yes and so to me that just that that has to have an impact in the way that we look at the world around us and we recognize this is not disconnected there's a reason the new (laughs) jerusalem is coming down out of heaven you know as a bride so oh that's good that's great yeah well i guess i guess the last question that i would ask is kind of this, this has been obviously just a, a very um, brief overview of kind of the book of Revelation and historical optimism, but why would you say that preterism is the best approach to the book of Revelation and in comparison with the other views that are out there? Yeah, good, good question. I, I, I guess, you know, when I first started teaching Revelation uh, at church two or three years ago, I One of the first things I said uh, was that I wanted to make Revelation a part of your Bible. 
you know, that was, that was it. And, and then I reflected on my own experience over the years uh, of really kind of resenting the book of Revelation. I'd been involved in Bible teaching ever since I was fresh out of college, you know, here and there. Uh, and I'd always really avoided Revelation because uh, I didn't get it. I didn't really like it. Uh, and it almost seemed like kind of an outlier, you know, why, why is that book there? It just, it, it was always so just sort of forbidding and difficult. And <clears throat> it does seem to me that those who take a futurist view and a historicist view both kind of find themselves in that same pickle. They, they have to bring a set of interpretive rules to Revelation that they wouldn't apply anywhere else in the Bible for the most part. Right. Uh, they have to more let's make it a freewheeling, independent, uh, disconnected uh, book of the Bible that is subject to all kinds of sort of fanciful interpretive um, uh, principles that that you wouldn't you would never apply that to the Gospel of John or to the Gospel of Matthew or to the Book of Romans or even to a lot of the Old Testament. It just you know doesn't fit. It's it's like this unique set of rules that applies only in that book. I don't like that. See, I didn't like it. And that made me kind of resent the book. And one of the most, uh, uh, I think, beneficial effects of a preterist view is that it not only makes Revelation part of the Bible, but it makes it part of the story of the Bible. Mm, yeah. uh, in some ways, the most uh, significant final event of the Old Covenant era was the definitive termination of the Old Covenant, when the temple was removed, the city was removed, the land was really dismantled, uh, the priesthood of Levi was brought to an end, uh, you know, all of these things which were essential to Old Covenant religion were, in fact, removed permanently and irretrievably. Right. <clears throat> and, and, um, and from that point on, the church could stand on her own two feet and be an independent religious movement in history that wasn't simply uh, a stepsister to Judaism, you know. Right. Uh, Judaism had to come to an end. Now, we have something in the world today called Judaism, but it is nothing like what was the religion of the Jewish people up until the first century. It is a very different religion. Right. That religion of the Old Covenant uh, had to end and the book that really celebrates that and describes it and describes it almost like a fireworks display is Revelation. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons, uh, we should be pleased to see Revelation as the final great sort of wonderful exclamation point at the end of the Bible uh, to, <clears throat> to celebrate the end of that whole Old Covenant era and the launching of the new Right. Uh, and an era in which we continue to live and uh, rejoice and anticipate God's ongoing work uh, till the end of history. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I think that's there for me. When I was growing up and reading the book of Revelation, hearing about the beast and then reading like Love Left Behind books <laughs> and seeing these grandiose <laughs> pictures of this Antichrist, I was terrified. I remember a time when I was like five or six. When I would literally, I would leave the house with my mom to go to the grocery store with her because I did not want to be away from her if we were to be raptured, you know, and That's right. I didn't want to be left behind. And so there was always this fear associated with the book and coming to this view, it, it changed it from this, this very dark picture of what lied ahead to, to really, as the title suggests, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, right? Yes, the, yes, the unveiling exactly. of his kingdom and the new covenant. And, and right. really, it's a picture. John's not writing to these seven churches to discourage them. <laughs> He's writing no, to them no. to encourage them that, that, yeah. that this is Christ is victorious. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it truly is a, a beautiful book and has become one of my one of my favorites. Um, well, I just want to say on a personal note, Jonah, uh, you, you have no idea. I mean, I'm 73 years old. You know, I'm an old guy. I don't have that many years left, but it is so encouraging to me to know there are guys like you out there, you know, who mm -hmm. uh, who've got a vision for this and who obviously have a. Uh, a profound uh, insight and uh, really remarkable uh, 
ability to communicate effectively. And that, to me, that is highly encouraging. So mm. I just want to commend you for the work you're doing and pray God will continue to use you mightily thank uh, you, in Jesus. the years to come, as I'm sure he will. Yeah. Glory, glory to God. Yeah. Thank you. Um, as we close, is there, is there anything you want to plug any resources that, that people can find and, and benefit from that are from you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, you mentioned Ken Gentry. I, you know, anything he writes is, is, uh, worth its weight in gold. In my opinion, he's a, he's a wonderful scholar and, and goes into some of these areas in much greater uh, detail than obviously is uh, possible in a conversation like this. So I certainly recommend anything by Ken Gentry. I think to date, uh, probably the best commentary on Revelation that's out there continues to be David Chilton's yes. uh, Days of Vengeance. Uh, I don't agree with him on every point, but I certainly agree with him on all the major points. And, and I, I've heard that Ken Gentry is actually working on his own commentary on Revelation. And if that's true, I look forward to uh, seeing it sometime. But, but uh, uh, anyone who's interested in pursuing this at a somewhat more uh, detailed level and hearing the arguments made in, in greater, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of force than we can do right now would be well served to take a look at those. There's also some great classic commentaries on Revelation that are well worth reading as well, but most of those are referenced in, in Chilton's book, so. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's what I would suggest. Great. And I, I would also just recommend that uh, those who are listening would would go check out your series that you did on, on the book of Revelation. Me and my wife went through it and I thought it was just excellent and uh, really covered all the major points from, from each chapter. So I'll link that playlist down below for, for those listening. Um, but uh, brother, thank you so much for, for doing this and being willing to have this conversation. Um, I am like I said at the beginning, I have benefited over the years from from your teaching, and it is a, a real privilege and treat to be able to talk to you. And I, I pray that God would continue to bless the work that you do. Thank you so much well, for coming you. on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.